Hello, everybody. My name is Eric Mercier. I am co-owner of Juice Imports, and today I'm going to walk you through the latest edition of our Natural Wine Club. This is the premium Natural Wine Club, so this is going to be the rarest of the rare in our portfolio, uh, and we're super thrilled by this lineup. Carrying on our theme this year of trying to be a touch more educational, we're doing more side-by-side -side tastings. So this time we decided to do a side-by-side -side of sparkling wine and talk about the two different methodologies, um, or at least two of the many different methodologies for making a wine sparkling and how that's going to create different flavor profiles uh, in the glass for you. So before we get started talking about the specific wines, I thought that it would make sense to explain to you the two different methods that we have here. Um, so the first sparkling wine that we have is using what we would call the traditional method uh, or sometimes referred to as the champagne method. Conveniently, this wine is from Champagne, so the champagne method name uh, probably makes a lot of sense. So uh, one of the ways that you can uh, make wine sparkling is by making a still base wine, so a non-sparkling base wine, uh, and then you add a little bit of sugar and you add a bit of uh, yeast and you put that, you know, your wine with a little bit of sugar and a little bit of yeast into the bottle. And what essentially happens is that the yeast eats that controlled amount of sugar uh, and makes, again, a little bit of alcohol as it always does during fermentation, but also CO2. And that CO2 has nowhere to go. It's trapped inside that bottle. And so what happens is you end up with a wine that is bubbly. Um, in order to do this, again, you, you have to add yeast and you have to add sugar to things that uh, weren't necessarily in that wine to begin with at that time. So it's considered sort of the less natural way of doing it. There's a lot of argument sort of right now about whether or not champagne can ever be considered a natural wine because it is so process driven. Um, when you're adding things like yeast and sugar, again, a lot of the time those yeast are developed in a lab and a lot of the time those sugars are things like beet sugar, uh, cane sugar. Even if it is organic, it's something that didn't come from grapes most of the time. So there's still an argument there about whether or not, uh, about whether or not champagne can really be called natural wine. Um, you know, I for me, I love champagne so much that I don't really care. Uh, <laughs> it's one of those things where it's like, I don't care about the name natural wine necessarily being associated with the product. My thought process is they're taking a wine style that they really love and are trying to make it in the most natural way possible. And so that means, in this case, farming in a sustainable way, um, you know, practice, practicing regenerative agriculture and then using wild fermentation where possible. So on that first fermentation, when you're making just your regular still base wine, you're using wild fermentation. You're not aging it in, uh, you know, brand new barrels that have a ton of flavors. You're not adding a lot of flavor that way. You're not adding sulfur. You're not fining or filtering. So as far as I'm concerned, it's a, it's a fairly natural process until you're adding uh, again, yeast and that little bit of sugar, but that's the least amount of manipulation you can do in order to make traditional style champagne. Um, the second methodology we're going to talk about today is Petion Naturel, or uh, as it's often called now, Petnat for short. Uh, this style is essentially the same where you're achieving carbonation by letting the wine ferment in bottle, but what's happening is that you're not adding yeast and sugar. What you're doing is you're bottling the wine while it's still fermenting from that first fermentation. So 
Again, the easiest way to think about it is champagne has two fermentations, one to make a base wine. So in this case, a still white wine, so a non-sparkling white wine, and then you're adding uh, a decided upon amount of sugar and yeast, uh, and then letting it ferment in bottle, versus with a Petion Naturale, you have one fermentation. So you crush the grapes, you let them start fermenting, so turning into wine, and then you put it into bottle, and it finishes that fermentation in bottle, and just the way that happens with champagne, where when yeast eats sugar, it creates CO2, and that CO2 in bottle has nowhere to go, Again, essentially the exact same thing happening. You're ending up with two very different flavor profiles from these two uh, types of sparkling wine fermentation. Um, champagne often is aged on the yeast, uh, which we call the lees. Uh, so those dead uh, yeast cells are called lees once they've done that fermentation. So once they've eaten all the sugar, turned it into alcohol and CO2, uh, they go essentially dormant or die and sink to the bottom of the bottle um, and then start imparting flavors. There's this really cool process called autolysis uh, where you're essentially starting to impart yeasty flavors into the wine. This is usually happening somewhere between six and 12 months after bottling, although I've also also heard arguments for it being uh, as far in advance as 18 months after bottling where you start noticing these flavor characteristics. As those yeast break down even further, you'll get more and more of these characteristics, um, but they also act as a preservative to the wine. Um, these, these yeast are sort of preventing oxidation, uh, preventing advancement, so you can easily age a wine on these lees for, in some cases, decades. Um, what then ends up happening before you release your champagne is you want to get rid of that yeast. So you end up with like a perfectly clear bottle of wine. So you do what's called riddling, which is where you essentially put the bottle mostly upside down and then rotate the bottle a little bit all the time until all the yeast slides down into the neck of the bottle. And then you're able to freeze just that neck, open the bottle, that little plug of, you know, yeast and wine and all the sort of particles that were floating around in there, but that have sunk to the bottom, you can get rid of that, top up the, you know, the neck of the bottle with a little bit more wine. Um, with non-natural champagnes, you'd be adding a little bit of sugar as well, too, in order to make the wine taste a little bit softer. But with the producer that we're talking about today, um, they're not adding any sugar. Uh, for Petnat, Sometimes they're disgorged and sometimes they're not. So sometimes they get rid of the yeast and sometimes they don't. With champagne, universally, by law, they have to get rid of the yeast. So you're never going to have a bottle of champagne that's particularly cloudy um, or that shows that haziness that you'd expect off of Petion Naturale or Pet Nats. Uh, Pet Nats, they don't have to be... Um, disgorged necessarily, uh, although certain producers... Uh, opt to do that just to make the wine a little bit more clear. With this particular wine that we have in the wine club today, it's not disgorged. So you're going to notice a little bit of sediment at the bottom. Again, this is a combination of, you know, uh, parts of the grape that have been left over, but also things like those dead yeast cells. Um, they're perfectly safe to drink. In fact, they're delicious. If you go certain places in the world, like uh, Italy or Japan, um, with these styles of wines, they'll actually tip them upside down first in order to get the sediment actually sort of um, into the wine, and then they'll start pouring it. So they actually, you know, in certain places in the world, they actually really like the flavors that, you know, those yeast impart. Um, for most people in North America, they rather let this bottle of wine sit 
um, you know, right side up in the fridge overnight, that'll allow, you know, maximum amount of that sediment to sink to the bottom. And then when you open it, um, it'll sort of just stay down there. So you don't end up with any of the flavors associated with those yeast. Um, Again, from a flavor perspective, champagne, because it can be aged on its leaves for a lot longer, uh, again, like I was saying, in some cases, decades, uh, we've gotten wines from one of our champagne producers named Tarlon. Uh, we've gotten bottles from 2002 that sat on the leaves for you know more than 15 years. So it's going to impart a lot of the yeast flavors um, versus something like a Petion Naturel, you know, usually you're disgorging it in the spring. So really that wine has only been in bottle for, you know, six months. So you're not getting a lot of flavor of the actual yeast itself. You're getting more of a focus on fruit flavors. So as sort of a general statement, um, Petillon Natural will be a little more focused on fruit characteristics. Um, but if you're mixing the lees into the actual wine you're pouring, it'll definitely have some more of those sort of creamy, yeasty, toasty characteristics. Uh, but champagne, as a general statement, tends to focus more on the umami uh, autolytic characteristics, so characteristics from the, the breaking down of that yeast. So that's sort of a brief introduction into why I put these two wines in the wine club. I wanted to show two very different styles of sparkling wines side by side so you can experience the difference in bubbles. Um, the bubble structure between these two styles tends to be quite different. Petillon Naturel tends to have slightly bigger bubbles versus Champagne because of this long aging process tends to have very tight bubbles. Um, Petillon Naturel tends to be a little bit lower carbonation uh, versus uh, champagne tends to be a little bit higher carbonation because the yeast that you're using are accustomed to these high pressures. You're choosing to add a yeast that, that again, is used to fermenting inside a bottle where there's no oxygen and where the pressures can be as high as five or six uh, times the pressure at sea level, for instance, so, so five or six bars. Um, yeah, very, very different styles of wine, but we'll get into that shortly. The first wine that we have is your champagne for the month. Uh, this is a champagne that has particular sentimental value to me. Uh, the first time I ever had this wine was in New York and I was, uh, you know, I had the foresight to smuggle a bottle back to Alberta and I was just completely blown away by it. I picked it up from Chamber Street, uh, which if you ever are in New York is a very, uh, incredible wine shop. You will easily go broke if you spend more than, you know, 20 minutes or so in there. Um, it's, it's very dangerous. Anyways, they recommended that I pick up this bottle of Charles Dufour, uh, Boule de Comptoir, which is exactly what we have in the wine club. And this was six years ago now that I was, uh, that I went on this trip to taste this wine, uh, to purchase this wine, I should say, I guess. And, uh, ever since then it's haunted me. And when we were sort of feeling nostalgic about traveling during, you know, the lockdowns at the early part of, of the pandemic, um, I reached out to Charles Dufour and was like, Hey, like, it's been a long time since I've had the opportunity to drink your wines because, uh, you know, we haven't been able to travel in the last little bit and, um, you know, your wines are quite rare. Uh, you know, it's ridiculous, but is there any chance that we could get an allocation? And, 
he was super kind to us and very enthusiastic and apparently our enthusiasm for his wine uh, showed through in our message. And so he was actually kind enough to give us a, a, a small allocation. And so we got that wine and we used it in our uh, in our regular wine club. We essentially took no markup on it and we uh, and we and we sucked it up and we and we put it into, uh, you know, our entry level wine club. And uh, we just did two bottles that month because we couldn't even afford to put three bottles into the wine club. And uh, it was awesome. And everybody freaked out and thought it was the best thing of all time. And, and we just happened to agree. And so uh, moving forward, we have gotten to work with a couple of his vintages, and, uh, and this is the new vintage from him. Um, this wine is coming from the southern part of Champagne in the Cote de Bar. The Cote de Bar is, uh, was historically thought of as sort of a lesser region within Champagne. It doesn't have quite the same soils that the rest of Champagne has. Its soils actually have a lot more in common with Chablis, so in this case, uh, Kimmeridgian limestone. Um, and, uh, and it was, again, it, it's sort of far away from the rest of Champagne. We went here, uh, maybe three weeks ago and visited maybe a little bit longer than that. Four weeks ago now we went and visited Charles Dufour in Champagne and, uh, from, uh, Rennes, which is sort of, again, I like sort of a central point within Champagne. It's like a two hour drive away. Uh, maybe not quite that far, hour and a half drive away, hour and 45 minutes, something like that. And so it's sort of off the beaten path and, and everybody sort of forgets uh, that, you know, wine is even made down here. And so a lot of it was never really exported, but a lot of young winemakers are starting to make wine in this region because the land is a little bit cheaper than it is elsewhere. Um, and you can make these more sort of vinous wines because it's a little bit warmer, Um it's, uh, again, it's like an hour and 45 minutes south and, and has slightly a different climate than the rest of Champagne. You end up making these wines that taste like wine. I think a lot of Champagne tastes like Champagne, but it doesn't necessarily taste like wine. And so because it's a little bit warmer down there, because the, um, you know, the choice of grape varieties, the choice of style, uh, you know, the history of the region, everything sort of lends towards these wines being more wine-like. Uh, which gets me really excited because, again, I think champagne should be able to express place just the same way that uh, any other style of wine does. So Charles Dufour is located in the Côte de Bar in this sort of southern region of, of Champagne. Um, he's in uh, Langreville, um, which is, again, a small sort of nothing town. I'm not even sure if there's anything actually in the town. I, I feel like we drove through it. We, we didn't actually see anything other than uh, a little church. Uh, <laughs> that's the extent of it. I'm not even sure if there's a bakery. Um, but it's uh, it's sort of a central point within the, uh, the Cote de Bar. Um, he's working mostly with Pinot Noir, uh, Pinot Noir classic champagne grape, then Chardonnay, which makes up about 30% of the blend, uh, and then Pinot Blanc, which you don't see quite as often in Champagne. It's one of the legal grapes that you're allowed growing in Champagne. There, there are sort of six uh, grape varieties that you see in Champagne, Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier, uh, Chardonnay, Pinot Blanc, um, Arbonne, and uh, Petit Melier. Uh, and so Pinot, uh, Pinot Blanc is, you know, it only makes up a fraction of what's actually planted in Champagne. So it's very rare to see it in, in bottles of Champagne, but this makes up 10%. 
Uh, Pinot Blanc tends to add this sort of soft fruitiness to the wines, um, a little bit more generous, a little more plush. And it's a style that I really like. I wish there was more Pinot Blanc planted in uh, in Champagne as a general statement. Um, but the other thing that makes Champagne really interesting is that it's most often multi-vintage. So unlike most places in the world where you'll see, you know, 2018 or 2019 or 2020, um, Champagne is often a blend of multiple vintages. And the reason for this is that it's located in a pretty precarious climatic position. Um, it's located quite north in an area that's quite wet. And if you, you think back 100 years ago before we really had our a handle on viticulture the way that we do now, it was really challenging to get grapes ripe year in and year out. And so what happened is that in order to sort of protect yourself from the the ebbs and flows of good and bad vintages, you would often blend multiple vintages together in order to sort of, you know, round things out a little bit. You could blend a ripe vintage with an underripe vintage and end up with something that was a little more balanced, essentially. Um, this has remained tradition, and it's something that Charles Dufour really focuses on. In fact, on the upcoming release, the one that's going to be coming out in, uh, I guess, a couple months now, maybe a little bit longer than that, three or four months from now, we should be getting the, the new vintage from him, um, which will be mostly from 2019. He's actually used some of his father's wines to be blended in. So I think it goes back to 1986. So it's a base wine. So the majority of the wine will be from 2019, but there will be wines blended in um, from as far back as the 1980s. So that's super exciting. Uh, this particular wine, 20% of it comes from wines between, uh, I believe, like 2017 and 2010. So some of the wine in this particular bottle is like 12 years old at this point. And that's going to add a ton of complexity for anybody who's ever had the opportunity to taste older wines, and in particular, older white wines or older sparkling wines. Um, they develop a ton of intensity, a ton of complexity, sort of a savoriness and oxidative quality, depending on how it's been aged. And so uh, Charles has this all aging in a really large oak barrel, like we're talking about thousands of liters. Um, it's a very large barrel, and, and it's kind of like having a, a mother stock, uh, where you just keep adding more every vintage. And obviously, the percentage of really old wine is going to be a lot lower than the percentage of new wine. But at the same time, it's this sort of idea that you, you're keeping keeping this, um, what they would call a reserve perpetuelle, uh, continuing, continuing it going forever, essentially. Um, again, to reiterate, most champagne producers are, uh, are A, farming with tons and tons of chemicals. It's one of the worst regions in the world for, um, for organic farming. You very rarely see organically farmed champagne. Um, most wines are fermented doing that first fermentation with yeast that was developed in a laboratory they're often fined and filtered uh using some, some pretty aggressive methodologies um and in this case this is just wild fermented uh freshly pressed grapes and then he puts it into bottle with uh again a little bit of sugar and a little bit of yeast but in the most sort of microwave possible. And then when he disgorges it, he's not adding any SO2, so no sulfur dioxide, uh, and not adding any sugar like you would see in a normal wine. So although there is that minor amount of manipulation to do the secondary fermentation, this is about as natural as, uh, as champagne gets. This wine is incredibly special. 
Uh, it's sought after all around the world. We get people all around the world asking if we can sell them some, whether they be in you know New York or Japan or London or whatever it happens to be. This is actually the house champagne at Noma, the number one restaurant in the world. So it's such a treat for us to be able to uh, share it here in Alberta. Even while we are in Champagne, uh, you know, when we were at a restaurant and people found out that we were wine importers, they're like, oh, who, which Champagne producers do you work with? And we'd be like, Charles Dufour. Um, and they'd be like, wow, we really love those wines and we can't even get an allocation and we're in the same region. So again, it feels extra special to, to have these wines. As far as the, the flavor profile goes, honestly, it's not even worth me trying to describe to you what this wine tastes like. It is just unbelievable. It's so ridiculously complex. Uh, it doesn't really follow any particular direction. Uh, it's, it's just like every flavor is, a, is, is, I don't know, completely new to me. So my tasting note on this is essentially the longest tasting note that I've ever written for one of these wine clubs, yet it still somehow does not do this wine justice. So best of luck trying to describe what this tastes like to your friends. Uh, I think you should just, you know, sit back and enjoy the experience. I can't wait to hear what you have to say about it because it's, it's just like such a treat to include it in the club. Um, to give you a little rundown on the label, the, the label here, uh, he sent basically a bunch of, of little stick on Polaroid photos of his family, uh, working the vineyard over the last, you know, couple generations. Uh, and so this is all like a throwback to hanging out with family. Every year the label changes. Uh, the upcoming label is a absolutely hilarious, uh, little illustration. Um, I'm very excited for you to see it. I won't give too much away about it because it's just going to be so much fun, uh, once it lands and we can have a big party and drink a bunch of champagne. So Either way, that's kind of the rundown on Charles Dufour. Uh, I know that was a lot of information in a short period of time, but definitely refer back to the newsletter. Uh, and if you have any questions, again, always feel free to, to reach out. Our second wine, uh, our second sparkling wine is Kamara's Petnat. Um, Kamara is located in Thessaloniki. Uh, I believe we've had something from Kamara in the, uh, the premium wine club before, um, but I can't quite remember what it was in all honesty, so somebody will have to remind me. Um, this particular wine is made uh, from a bunch of different grape varieties. The base wine is made essentially from Assyrtico and Melaguzia, uh, two uh, indigenous grape varieties to this particular region. Uh, Assyrtico, famous for being high acid and intensely flavored and, and full-bodied. Uh, Melaguzia, uh, famous for being really aromatic, very floral, very tropical. Uh, for me, sort of reminiscent of uh, somewhere between Viognier and Gewürztraminer. Um, tends to have softer acidity to it, uh, but it's a really fun wine. My understanding is that Demetrios actually made this wine uh, for his daughter's wedding as like a, you know, they wanted bubbles, so, you know, let's go for it. And, uh, and everybody ended up liking it so much, it went into production, and we agree that it tastes that good. We actually met up with Dimitrios, uh, even though he's, he's making wine in, uh, in Thessaloniki, um, he went to France for a wine fair at the start of March, and we actually got a chance to go meet up with him. Uh, honestly, one of the nicest people I've ever met in my entire life. Uh, his whole family is just so adorable. I'll try and include a photo in our, in our newsletter um, 
so that you can get excited about just like their level of uh, enthusiasm for farming and for winemaking and for uh, sharing wine with people. I think they're just so into the idea of wine community uh, and collaboration. So it's it's just an honor to be able to represent them and, and get to share their wines in the wine club. Especially considering you know we only got a really small amount of this wine, and so for us to be able to put it into the wine club is is a treat. Um, so this wine goes through that that primary fermentation. Uh, and then sort of at the end of the fermentation, they're adding Xenomavro. Uh, Xenomavro is a red grape, but they, they, um, essentially direct press it. Uh, and so you're ending up with this sort of like pink juice from this really intense red grape variety. And then they're adding that to the wine for the fermentation. So instead of adding sugar and yeast, um, they're adding essentially, uh, just like fresh grape juice that is just doing its own sort of fermentation. Um, this wine is in theory five bars of pressure or, or so he said. I find this wine is like a little bit less sparkling than that, probably somewhere around four bars of pressure. Um, we definitely recommend putting this wine sort of upright in the fridge for, you know, at least 24 hours before you open it uh, because it is undisgorged. Uh, you know, it can be a little active and quite bubbly. So have a glass nearby when you open it. They're not explosive necessarily, but it can definitely like froth over the top. So it's just best to have a, you know, a glass nearby so you don't waste anything. Um, this wine for me is just like overtly uh, fruity and floral, tropical, a little bit spicy. Uh, again, I, I seem to be using this descriptor a lot lately, but it, it's very reminiscent of a tiki drink for me. Uh, I love sort of like fruity, like fruit and, and, you know, boozy cocktails, uh, <laughs> that, that sort of tiki style with lots of, you know, rum and, and just like different fruit juices and stuff. And, and for some reason, this wine definitely puts me in that same sort of category. Uh, I absolutely adore this wine and wish that I got the opportunity to drink it a lot more often. Um, it's shockingly pairable with food. Uh, I know I didn't mention any pairings with the champagne, but again, you can, you can refer to, uh, the newsletter it's uh sparkling wines are just so easy to pair with things they go with pretty much everything um you know when you think about things that you need for pairing you need acidity uh you need freshness you need intensity of flavor but not overwhelming uh and that's essentially what sparkling wine is so it just goes with everything so um you know you can refer to our notes for some recommendations but i don't think you need to be too nervous when you're deciding what to have this with the last wine that we have in the club, we had to throw our red in there, and so we decided to uh, to pick something extra special. Um, we're using Rheinsturm's Cabernet Pfeffer. Uh, there's only 10 acres of Cabernet Pfeffer in the world, uh, from my understanding, although Rheinsturm just planted uh, a little bit more. So hopefully that number is going to start creeping up there slowly and surely. Um, but this is a grape variety on the brink of extinction. Nobody's actually really sure what it is. Um, Cabernet Pfeffer is just sort of the name that it's acquired since being in California, but in theory, it comes from somewhere in France. We're just not entirely sure. We don't know what this grape variety used to be called. Uh, I've included, you know, some of people's guesses, but honestly, I've heard so many different uh, thoughts on where this comes from uh, that, you know, I'm not even going to speculate too much. Um, most of this is coming from, well, all of it is coming from... Um, 
uh, San Benito County. So in sort of like central California, uh, including some super old vines. So uh, again, we're talking about, you know, like hundred year old vines in Wurz Vineyard. Wurz Vineyard is in the uh, Chenega Valley. It's essentially its own region. <laughs> it's like, I think it's, it's only got one vineyard in this entire region, which is the Wurz Vineyard, but it's so special that it deserves its own regional appellation. Uh, it's planted essentially directly on the fault line. So you have this really interesting combination of soils. Um, you know, there's like Zinfandel and stuff like that, that was planted in the, uh, I think like the 1880s. So we're talking super old vines here. Um, a lot of the Cabernet Pfeffer, I, I believe is interplanted with other things. So they actually have to go through the vineyard to like find the Cabernet Pfeffer plants, uh, which ends up making it into this, this single variety wine. Ryan Sturm is one of our favorite winemakers because he tries to do everything as Californian as possible. Uh, so I believe this is fermented in Redwood, uh, which is really cool. So back in the day, Redwood fermenters used to be maybe not the norm, but definitely super common in California. But essentially since I, I want to say it was the 60s, um, you know, you don't really see them anymore. So I, I believe Ryan Sturm's fermenters are from the 60s. Unlike oak, though, that tends to lose its flavor quite quickly, you know, over the course of three to six years, it's going to lose most of its flavor. Um, with redwood, you tend to continue getting interesting redwoody characteristics uh, for longer periods of time than that. Uh, we only got 60 bottles of this wine. You only made 245 cases. So we're talking extraordinarily small production here. And we, we feel very lucky that we even got that uh, 10 case allocation. From a flavor perspective, this wine, again, it's hard for me to deny its similarities to Barbaresco. Barbaresco is one of my favorite wines and a wine that I don't really get to drink that often. Um, it, Barbaresco is extraordinarily expensive on average. You know, you're talking somewhere between 80 and $100 a bottle usually. Um, again, you can still find some that are like $60, $70, but you know, we're mostly talking like 80 to 100 these days um, and all the way up to hundreds of dollars a bottle. And so for me to discover a wine that really gives me that Barbaresco feel, uh, but without the price tag associated with it is an extraordinarily extraordinary treat. Barbaresco is famous for being very... Uh, transparent, so very light in color, uh, but tends to be very intense in flavor, having lots of floral characteristics, um, almost this tar-like characteristic, uh, and tends to have high tannin and quite high acidity. And this is very much in the, in the same boat. Uh, on paper, the acidity is not super high on this wine, but because uh, of the other structural components, I find that it's very fresh, very intense. Um, even in the glass, it looks a lot like Barbaresco with this slightly bricky edge. Uh, so an edge that kind of has maybe some orange highlights to it. Um, but yeah, for me, this was such a standout when I tasted through Ryan's lineup this year that I felt like I had to save it for the wine club. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure over the course of the next month or two, we'll probably include another wine from Ryan Stern just because I like them so much. Um, but uh, either way, it was fun to be able to put this one in the wine club. Anyways, we'll keep the wine club pretty, or the, I guess the podcast fairly short this month. We don't want to overwhelm you with information. Um, but if anybody has any additional questions, we'd be happy to geek out with you. Um, 
Definitely keep an eye on our Instagram right now as well too. We're posting tons of new events. And so if you want to come out and taste with us in person, definitely check that out and, and come hang out. Uh, we're looking forward to hearing from you. If, uh, if you do want to contact us, you can send me an email at eric, E-R-I-K, at juiceimports.com. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time. Looking forward to chatting with you again soon.